Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of Truth to Power, your weekly community conversation happy hour recorded here after work on Friday, June 4th. On Forward Radio, WFMP LP Louisville, we broadcast at 106.5 FM and live stream at forwardradio.org. You can hear all the archived editions of this and our other local programs at forwardradio.org. And we're totally accountable to you, the listeners. We we don't have any advertising on our station. We don't have any, uh, you know, big foundations that we're accountable to. It's all listener contributions keeping us on the air, so you can help us stay on the air uh, by going to FordRadio.org right now and making a contribution. It's only $20 a day. What a bargain. Uh, we also rely entirely on volunteer support, so maybe you want to get behind these microphones uh, and become a guest on a program or maybe do your own show here on Ford Radio. We'd love to have you. And uh, you can do that, too, by going to FordRadio.org. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the programmers here at the station. I do a little show called Sustainability Now. And uh, I also have another programmer in the virtual studio with me this week. That's Hart Hagen, host of the Climate Report, which you can hear on this station. Uh, not, and It's not every day of the week anymore, is it? I have to well, change yeah, up. Yeah, it is, it is every day. It's oh, that's right. Time. No, it's a half hour now. Sorry. Yes. Right. Sorry. Yeah, it's only a half hour. Only a half hour. Every day of the week at 7 p.m. Uh, you can hear Hart and the Climate Report. And we're really excited to have back on the show with us our good friend Stephen Bartlett. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. It's great to be on. Yeah, Stephen is uh, joining us from the garden because he is executive director of the Sustainable Ag of Louisville, a proud Ford Radio community partner. And you can learn more about the organization SAL at salouisville.org. Uh, boy, what a great week for uh, just food production in our city. Right, guys? Have you been out eating oh. local? <laughs> right. Yeah. So you've oh, got yeah. some no, service berries going on, Justin. Oh, yeah. I do have service berries going on, and I encourage all of our listeners to get their service berry on. Uh, if you don't know about them, they're also known as June berries because they're ripe on June 1st. And I just hosted a, a foraging workshop earlier this afternoon at the University of Louisville. We always get people together at our garden commons uh, for a little stroll around campus to sample all the edible landscaping. And it's not just at the university. You'll find them planted all over town. They're very common street trees because they're a native species so you also find them in the woods uh, but you'll you just have to turn your head here in Louisville and you should see trees loaded with purple berries uh, they start out red but when they're ripe they're purple uh, they're the size of a blueberry a little bit like that in flavor and shape for sure but it's actually in the almond family so when you when you bite down on a service berry you taste that little bit of nuttiness and I think it's been a really good year for them. Uh, we had that May without any rain, basically, uh, where they instead of getting really big and watery, they got kind of sweet uh, and concentrated. Um, and then they just got a fresh rinse from two days straight of rain, right? <laughs> well, Justin, where can you find service berries? You, you, you say they're everywhere. Yeah, literally, like any anywhere in the, on the street, you know, under power lines that are commonly planted because they don't grow too big. Um, there's some great ones right downtown, uh, just north of Broadway on Jackson. There's like four trees that hang over the sidewalk that are great. Uh, just the other day I was picking off of some trees that are just north of Ali on Floyd Street next to the University of Louisville's Lion's Eye building. 
And then there's a, a whole line of them on Third Street down at, down at the main U of L campus, all the way from the main Ekstrom Library south, past Eastern Parkway, under the railroad overpass on the left there as you're heading south. Man, there's got to be a dozen or so trees that are always just loaded every year. Uh, but that's just a few examples. They're, they're literally planted in parking lots and all over town. And uh, the most common question is, is there another berry that's poisonous <laughs> that looks like that? And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> but you'll put it in your mouth. You'll know immediately whether it's a sweet treat or a poison berry. <laughs> but it's really funny so, how, how unaccustomed we are to foraging, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. So in addition to eating it fresh, how can you like preserve it or prepare it or yeah. how, can you, how can you cook it? Oh, or not cook it, but, no, you yeah, can. I, mean, I mean, anything you can do with a blueberry, you can do with mm -hmm. a service berry. So sure, I eat them fresh this time of year on my cereal, but I also load up my freezer full of them. So I, I've got them to, you know, make stuff with all year long. They're great in smoothies. Uh, they're great in ice cream. Uh, you could put them in your yogurt, uh, and yeah, you can bake with them. You can make pies, and and uh, you could have a great, you know, shortcake. Uh, service berry shortcake would be delicious right now. Uh, so yeah, like any any use you can imagine for any other kind of berry. They're and they're great mixed with other berries too. <laughs> so lots of antioxidants uh, and just Ooh. a just a great you know abundance of nature at this time of year. Uh, so are they in the almond family? That's right. They are in the almond family, uh, and and almonds aren't native to our region, but these things are. So get out this time of year. They're only around for like a couple weeks before they disappear. Uh, they'll drop, uh, or the birds will get them. Birds love them. Uh, you'll see lots of birds up in the service berry trees, but there's plenty for us humans, too. <laughs> One of our three, I think one of the three great native fruits everybody should be aware of, right? You guys know the right. other two? Pawpaws. Pawpaws, yeah, that's right, that's right. And blackberries? Well, blackberries, I don't know. Are blackberries native? I, oh, yeah. I, I'm never sure they about grow, those canes. Are they? Great. I was thinking I mean, trees. There's, okay. There's another yeah, tree. Blackberries. Yeah, mulberry. There's some native mulberries and there's some non-native mulberries. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, boom. It's also mulberry season, so don't miss this opportunity to grab yourself some mulberries. There's all kinds of different varieties you'll find in town, uh, and they must crossbreed or something too, because you'll see trees that have all right. kinds of different colors and shapes on them. Uh, I find the ones that are white mulberries tend to be like the really the sweetest, most amazing, or like candy. Uh, but there's great mm. purple ones too. And yeah, you can make jams just like with service berries, you jams and jellies out of them. Uh, and uh, no, I was thinking of the other native fruit that's that's ready in the in the fall and late fall, which is a persimmon. Mm. <laughs> and they're, they're they're not at all like those Asian persimmons you find in the supermarket. They're they're sweet and uh, I don't know. They're they're a different texture, uh, but they're delicious. I love a right. I love a persimmon. Of course. Yeah, so I encourage everybody to get out and forage this time of year. That's what I've been up to. How about you guys? Well, yeah, well, is... my wife found a neighbor's cherry tree overhanging the road. The road nice. You know? And, um, yeah, I mean, the next stage would be to bring a ladder. But I think I'd like to talk to the owner. I don't think the owner knows she has a, uh, he or she has all this delicious, sweet <laughs> cherries going in her front right away. But, um yeah, you'd be amazed if you look around how much food you can find this time of year. Yeah, and cherries, too, are, are one I, that I think have benefited this year from those droughty conditions we had because 
I often find our cherries just get attacked by fungus and you lose them, most of them. But this year, they seem to be doing great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my brother has a mess of them, and they're so sweet. I mean, but then last week was the big delic- delicacy of the Fresh Stop Strawberry Festival. And um, it was a pickup drive through But, man, you've never had such a delicious drive through <laughs> A gallon of that those strawberries just melted in your mouth. It was Ooh. amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's strawberry season two. That's a great thing. Not a native thing, but a great one to have in your garden. And also very productive this year. They supplied first aid at our planting of the three sisters because one of our one of our compañeras uh, got very uh, like overheated in the heat of the midday oh, yeah. planting our crop. And but there were strawberries right on the edge there. She rehydrated uh, munching on Adam Barr's strawberries, which are fantastic also. Yeah. Yeah, you want to say more about the Three Sisters plot uh, out in Meade County? Well, we planted like three days before the full moon and had some wonderful volunteers come out, including AJ, uh, one of our veteran camp counselors, and her husband and baby, Lavender. Anyway, they came out, and and it was just a wonderful gathering of some of the old-timers with some new folks, and um, then we had a wonderful meal afterwards, including some really amazing mulberries from the front yard of Adam yeah. Bar as well. Yeah. Yeah, this is something we've been doing. You you taught me some history this year about it. We've been doing this since 2001. Uh, at different, yeah, the corn mm-hmm. has been grown and saved since then. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, a, it's a classic indigenous strategy to plant Corn, beans, and squash, the three sister crops all together because they really complement one another. And the neat thing is you can plant them as seed in the ground at the same moment, uh, and they'll all uh, serve each other in different ways. So the beans sort of fertilize. They fix nitrogen, fertilize the soil a little bit for the corn, which acts as sort of the infrastructure by growing up tall and straight, and the beans can grow up the corn. And then the squashes like to spread out over the soil and cover it and keep the weeds down so it turns out to be a pretty good lazy man's crop in a sense like we just we just that put makes the... too much sense it's supposed <laughs> to take time effort and lots of money spent on fertilizers Chemicals. that's how you're yeah. supposed to grow things that's right that's right uh no we just put the seeds in the ground come back once to do a weeding about a month later uh and then come back at harvest time it's pretty amazing yeah and i i was just occurred to me um, many people have forgotten about this method of growing these three crops together, uh, but it goes back millennia. And I feel like we're we're uh, doing a family reunion when we gather. We we gather our family of two legged along with our family of climbing and and rooting annual crops. So it's so wonderful coming together. So the the beans want to grow on something, and the corn provides a structure for the beans to grow on. And also Correct. the, the beans fix the, the beans fix nitrogen, so they you know that provides your nitrogen fertilizer. It's like the the atmosphere is seventy eight percent nitrogen. Right. So why why would you want to buy nitrogen when you've got seventy eight percent of the atmosphere? Does that nitrogen is just dying to you know be useful in the in the soil? If you have like legumes, but also a lot of bacteria fix nitrogen. So if we just plant the right things and plant the right mixes of things, then we can uh, get this nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And it's like 
farmer, Gabe Brown, said, he said, I like to sign the, the back of a check, not the front of a check. He said, uh, you know, you don't want to, you, he said, I got tired of writing checks, you know, writing checks for nitrogen fertilizer. When you got all this nitrogen right there in the atmosphere, you just have to have a good strategy for what you plant. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that true? And we wouldn't have this abundance of chemical fertilizers if it wasn't for the abundance of fossil fuels, right? I mean, that's really right. the only reason that we see all this chemical fertilizer. And then it ties into a whole fossil fuel-based uh, industrial agricultural system with giant tractors and equipment that none of it we, we would ever even think to have if we weren't, like, sloshing around with all these... Uh, you know, preserve sunlight from eons ago uh, and that solar energy that, that hit the swamps <laughs> back in the time of the dinosaurs, right? That we're, right. we're digging out of the ground or pumping out of the ground and using, uh, burning and, and um, would, would be great if it, if it was just a little treat that we could use and not worry about. But unfortunately, it is leading to climate disaster. And maybe we'll have some time to talk about climate change later in the show. But I, I really do want to get to some of these issues that uh, Stephen wanted to talk about with us today. I think it's been it's been really top of people's minds uh, as we here in places like Louisville start to feel like we can finally breathe again after COVID uh, when we've we've finally gotten to a place where enough of us are vaccinated. But when you look globally, the situation is not nearly so uh, positive. Uh, and in fact, there's many, I mean, we've heard about India recently, but uh, South America is also facing a real crisis in terms of the pandemic ongoing. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the responsibility for that uh, lies on us here in the wealthy countries, right, Stephen? Well, I mean, okay, what we have is not a, We've gotten the habit of not working together with other countries, you know, under Trump. And um, so now we're faced with uh, this issue of basically a lot of people not, not even wanting to, to get the vaccines who haven't had it yet. Um, whereas places like Africa is only 1% vaccinated yeah. in Africa, okay? Um, and then we're getting new outbreaks in different parts of Africa. So Latin America has been hammered. I mean, We've had some terrible outbreaks, and of course, Brazil is like third in the world for for uh, COVID cases and deaths. And um, so we have a major crisis. I mean, we may be feeling a little bit better. I I, I feel wonderful about being vaccinated and having things open up again. But um, but I'm thinking about going back to the Dominican Republic, for example, and right. where they're they don't have enough they don't have enough vaccines to really make a dent in in the population in terms of stopping the the general, you know, outbreaks of COVID. So, you know, um, and India is just a horrible, horrible situation that has been called by some, you know, a crime against humanity, how Modi handled that, yeah. uh, the whole the whole crisis there. Um, Brazil, I mean, you've got a, the, the Trump of the Southern Cone, right, Bolsonaro, who just denied it, denied it, got it himself like Trump, and then, <laughs> but doesn't, doesn't know how to, doesn't want to deal with it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's quite. So we're very privileged. So I, I heard today, you know, Biden says we're gonna we're gonna send 80 million doses, and that's better than the 20 million we talked about last week. But um, we need to really get, like, like uh, Jeffrey Sachs was saying on Democracy Now today, we need a, a Zoom call with all the the big players, the, the uh, pharmaceuticals, the government, and the health officials from the WHO around the world, and and Covax and everything to make a plan because governments don't know when they're going to get the vaccines. They, they can't plan for rolling out vaccination campaigns. Uh, right now it's 
the beneficence of China and Russia and some some other side deals that people are making to get some vaccines. Um, but we don't want it to be like this uh, this casino market where where people are starting high prices of vaccines. Um, and it's a life and death situation. This should be a coordinated international effort. There should be subsidies. The big government should put up some money because it's in everyone's benefit to get the world vaccinated. There's no reason. I think someone said with 50 billion, you could have everyone vaccinated within 12 months. Wow! Right? When you think about when you think about how much we've spent just on the stimulus in the United States, and yet 50 billion across the whole world would end the pandemic. Um, <laughs> you know, the priority. Stephen, don't you know we need to spend that on bombs? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Those F-35s don't come cheap, Stephen. Yeah, I know. Yeah, trillion-dollar program. Plane doesn't work. Well, one thing that yeah. happens here is the pharmaceutical companies, and you know, Bill Gates is no small part of this. Bill Gates has made his fortune patenting things, and pharmaceutical companies patent things, and and Gates has uh, you know invests in the pharmaceutical companies either directly or through the Gates Foundation. And but they're uh, they're patenting things that have been developed at taxpayer expense, mm. you know. Uh, mm. So you know all this research, you know, at least seventy five percent of this research is uh, developed at taxpayer expense, and then it gets handed over to a, one pharmaceutical company who then has a monopoly, yeah. uh, you know, patent in the form of a you know, a monopoly in the form of a patent, and then they get to charge whatever prices they want. Um, and you know you have multiple companies doing this, but it's a you know it's a big racket because private profit, you know it's like privatizing the uh, profits and socializing the costs of the stuff. Well, and there's been a hoarding issue too. Like it, it's not just corporate greed, but I, I guess nationalistic greed, right? Um, and it's I we we always like to you know point to what the U.S. is doing wrong, but Canada, right, has hoarded an incredible amount of the vaccine. Like there's this overreaction, very similar to what we saw at the start of the pandemic when people were hoarding things like toilet paper for some reason. I still can't figure out. <laughs> right. I don't, right. I don't know why anyone thought they were going to need extra toilet paper if they caught COVID. But first things first. <laughs> first things first, right? <laughs> but we've we've been hoarding these vaccines too, uh, and and it, it, when you when you think uh, selfishly instead of collectively and cooperatively, that's the kind of behavior you get, whether it's at, down at your local Kroger or globally with a vaccine, right? Uh, and it's such a shame that we tend to think that way, but it's not surprising given this is directly tied into what Hart was just saying about spending on the military, right? Like you wouldn't spend all that money on defense, so-called, although it's really used for offense, but you wouldn't yeah. spend all that money if you were thinking about collective liberation and, uh, and collective well-being globally. Uh, and, and we wouldn't hoard vaccines if we didn't do that either. And, um, you know, Stephen was talking about the need for global coordination here, and we have it, right? That's why we have a United Nations and a World Health Organization is just for exactly these kinds of events. And people will say, oh, look how they failed in this time of crisis. But I think they were pushed off the cliff by people like Trump and Bolsonaro and everybody else, right? Like it, it was this perfect storm of a of a virus plus neo-fascism in my mind that that really put us in such dire straits. Am I off base on that? Yeah, no, I think you're right on. But and the other aspect is that 
we've already dismantled sort of the equal access to the healthcare system here in the United States. So that's why we have such tremendous disparities and disproportionality in, in who's suffering the most from the COVID. But it's also the reason why why patents are held like intellectual property is held as as something that is is held as more important than health of humanity. Yeah. Right. At this point, the big pharmaceuticals don't want to share the recipes for their for their vaccines, which which and, and therefore like places like India that have the capacity to produce large amounts of vaccines if given the recipe and and some technology a little bit of technological help. Uh, with some of the manufacturing capacity there, and also Brazil is a big. Mexico also can produce vaccines, right? Why yeah. are Why are we hoarding the recipes when they, these should be out there being produced in many, many uh, manufacturing facilities across the world? And that's really the way that that we're going to put a dent in the, in the problem of the of the global South not having access to the vaccines. So one way that we could do this is one way we could do it is not have patents. It's like if the, if something is developed at government expense, anybody can use it. So that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to have at least three companies that each have a patent. There would at least be some competition there. So huh. I, I'm categorically, well, I, I'm government. just almost yeah. categorically against patents. I mean, I just think it's... Uh, you know, it's an, it's enclosure of the commons. It's taking public assets, many of them developed at public expense, and it's putting it into the hands of a very few. I don't, you know, we're, we're taught that patents are supposed to uh, incentivize investment. No, they don't. They incentivize hoarding. Mm. And uh, so, yeah. just saying, just saying. And it's yeah, a- I, think, I think maybe there's a way to patent. They're talking about even if that's licensing, uh, you know, providing licenses, which they don't want to do. What what we want to avoid is monopoly control of the most important things in our life, right? And so that that is where we need better regulation. I can see some use for having patents, but well-regulated and limited in time and limited in scope. And if there is public money, you know, that, that, shouldn't be, that should be uh, open, like you say, a common, a common good. It's- most of the stuff, like it's my understanding that the mRNA uh, technology that is being used for the vaccines was developed at public expense. Yes, correct. Yep. So there's there's you know, there's medical technology and most technology is developed under the Pentagon and DARPA and all that. So it, you know every component of an iPhone, for example, was developed by the Defense Department uh, at public expense, and then it gets handed over. You know to companies that are in a position to make money off of it. But they, you know, here's my iPhone. I have to pay for my iPhone. They should be paying me for that, this iPhone, because, you know, it's, <laughs> there's so much market activity going on. And as a result of the iPhone, they should be paying us because we invested it to begin with. If we had real capitalism, then the taxpayer that invested for decades in the iPhone or all this medical technology would be being paid back since it's not easy to pay back the the uh, taxpayer directly, one way they could pay us back is just not letting, it's just making this intellectual property open source and freely available to anybody who can use it instead of giving, you know, the most profitable corporations in the world exclusive right to use what was developed because of, your taxes and mine, our parents' taxes, 
our grandparents taxes, our great grandparents taxes. Heck, if you just go back to 1945, you're going back several generations of taxpayers who are paying to the government uh, for this you know, technology to be developed. Don't get me started on technology. Well, and it's especially egregious now that there's a whole field called biotech and biotechnology allows now corporations to have monopoly patents on seeds, things like seeds. And then an individual farmer who might be unfortunate in a situation of having to plant those seeds to make a living can be sued by these corporations if for saving their the seed yeah Uh, you know a a traditional farming practice that helps reduce costs and allows farmers to have some control over what they're growing they're just trying to impose this monopolistic model of agribusiness where and it's global too right Stephen? these these issues aren't just confined to american farmers right well, that's why they call them transnational corporations, yeah. right? <laughs> they, have no, they have no allegiance to any, any government. They are supra-governmental. So that's why our movements need to be transnational solidarity, internationalist movements. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out and always advocate for that and r- remind that, us. That's communism. I can't do that. That's communism. <laughs> So Hart's solution is is no patents. Um, how how do you propose uh, research gets funded? Then um, are you just saying we should, we should tax corporations more and uh, and and fund research publicly? Is that what you're saying? Well, what are we going to? What what do we want to do anyway? I mean, uh, the situation we have now. You know, if you're going to make uh, drugs for erectile dysfunction or male pattern baldness, then that gets <laughs> then that gets funding because you you can make you know you can make money back on that. Um, Ralph Nader talks about how you know in the in the 60s, I think in Vietnam, they wanted to come up with anti-malarial drugs. So it's like, what company is going to want to come up with an anti-malarial drug? Can't make a profit off of that. So they just had like four different government-funded, government-executed and implemented projects where they came up with, out of the four programs, they came up with three different anti-malarial drugs that are still being used today. And it's like, where did we get the idea that government is incapable of, of doing this kind of thing? And, uh, you know, so the funding comes from the taxpayer anyway. That part doesn't have to change. The only part that has to change is that we're not going to give Wall Street exclusive patents on what we paid to develop. Mm-hmm. 100% agreed, 100%. Yeah. We're talking here today on our Truth to Power Happy Hour here on Forward Radio. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg. I'm a programmer here at the station. I, I do a show called Sustainability Now. Another programmer is Hart Hagen with us today. He does the Climate Report every day of the week at 7 p.m. And we're really thrilled to have joining us in the virtual studio today our good friend Stephen Bartlett from Sustainable Agriculture of Louisville. You can learn more about them at salouisville.org. They're a proud community partner of us here at Forward Radio. We're talking about vaccine apartheid today and uh, other issues that are in the news. Um, The Biden administration has done some surprisingly progressive things, but seems to be pretty hesitant to restore taxes on corporations and the 1%, right, Stephen? It feels like, yeah, it feels like Biden's 
administration is feeling like they're being ground down by the, the never never ending uh, grumbling of Republicans and their crazy agenda that they have to block any any progressive legislation. Um, so yeah, the the issue of taxes, right? Everyone's grump. Uh, the right wing is. You know, the problem is the media doesn't really hold spokespersons for these different points of view to really to account. So the Republicans are saying we don't want any of these corporate taxes. But we remember last year when the, suddenly the tax rate went from like 28% down to like, I don't know, 19%, something like that, or 16%, some ridiculous thing. It was like the 1% made out like bandits from that those tax cuts that were that were passed by the last Congress. So, you know, all we're asking for is to reverse those so we can pay for very badly needed infrastructure and, and support for, you know, daycare and to get our economy back going, going again. Um, there's a lot, a lot of, I mean, the war, okay, cutting taxes for two, two trillion, but they don't want to pay for any stimulus, you know? I mean, we have a $21 trillion debt. So what is another two trillion going to do? Really? We we're already sort of, uh, indebted to our future, the, our, the next generation is going to have to pay off our debt. But right now, people are suffering. They're getting evicted. We have so millions who are unemployed, who, who were previously employed before COVID. But we need, we still need help. I mean, the bottom tier of society needs big time help. And um, I, I just think it's ridiculous that they, they don't know how to fight. They want to be, they want to sound reasonable. They, they want to be bipartisan. They don't want to do away with the. Uh, filibuster, which we now learn is a relic of, of slavery, basically, the, the desire to to prevent progressive policies from taking place in the South. The filibuster was used mostly by white supremacists for for practically a century, you know, right. Jim Crow in place. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's, I think we need a more fight. And why, why are we not here in fight? Because the, the Democrats are too beholden to very big campaign donors. And that's the bottom line. It's just like, it's like moving, uh, it's trying to herd cats, really. They're cool cats. They don't want to be taxed. It's hard to herd them, you know. <laughs> and they just they have the ear of the, the politicians. Yeah. Well, a couple of issues come to mind. One is what's the vision, and the other is to the extent that we need funding, how, how, where's that funding going to come from? In terms of the income tax, it, it tax rate counts for something, but also the tax breaks count for a lot. We give a lot of money, a lot of tax credits to corporations for doing things like, I don't know, jobs. And well, we could we could pay people directly for jobs. And if it's research and development, we could do research and development directly. Um, I don't think when you when you get up, I favor a wealth tax, you know, the income tax obviously as a source of revenue, but income tax, if you count the social security tax, it's, it's kind of regressive. You're taxing wage earners and uh, instead of taxing people in the upper brackets, it's been shown that if you invest a dollar in IRS to actually do its job, then it can come up with $7 if they, uh, you know, pursue the right people. But, uh, you know, I, I question whether the income tax will ever be, uh, if you get up to the to billionaires, the in, their, their actual income is just a minuscule portion of their wealth. So, you know, I liked Bernie Sanders' wealth tax, which, uh, you know, if, if you're 
up to 32 million, you're not taxed at all. And then it starts at 1% and then it goes up to 8% when you get up into the billionaire category. And, and so 8% per year uh, is nothing. Uh, to, it's, it's reasonable. I mean, billionaires can get 8% return on their money. You know, so if, if we wanted to get serious about, you know, taxing in a way that's reasonably fair and reasonably simple, I think we need a wealth tax. So, yeah. And I don't think there's any other way to really get at the current wealth inequality. I mean, without completely turning over our economic system, uh, you know, as, as long as we're going to have a capitalist system, if we want any kind of equity, it's going to require some good tax policy, uh, yeah, some yeah. progressive tax policy, right? Right. Yeah. And concentration of wealth is inherently anti-democratic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you have enough money, you can buy the government. Right. You know, uh, too much money and too much power and too few hands is the power to make war. It's the power to put out toxic products with no accountability. It's the power to bust unions. You could just go on and on and on. Too much power and too few hands is is against the interests of the people. And as long as, you know, power is money, and as, as long as we allow that power and money to continue to accumulate, we can expect that we have less and less power as individuals. Hmm. What do you guys think about it? I'm a, here to cheer you up. Yeah. <laughs> about a um, sort of a wealth cap. I feel like it doesn't really make any sense that people can sort of infinitely accumulate wealth. Uh, yeah. What Really, why we, how, how is it going to improve your life or anybody else's beyond a certain amount, right? After your first few million. <laughs> well, what, what you need to understand, Justin, is that if Jeff Bezos has $200 billion, then he works $200 billion than you yeah he's that much smarter than all of us of course right he's, he's contributing he has that much money because he's a contributor <laughs> yeah yeah well i think there's got to be a smarter way uh forward for us um but i want to i want to also get to another global issue that that steven's been uh, keen to talk about, which is the UN Food Systems Summit, uh, which our listeners might not be aware of, uh, happening this summer, right? Uh, and it, and captured by Big Ag. Is that is that what's going on? Steve? <laughs> what is the situation? Well, I'm glad you find that amusing, Hart. But, um, <laughs> this is uh, this. Uh, yeah, the uh, you know the commute the. The Committee on Food Security of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN has been opening up a process of dialogue with a with a civil society mechanism. It's been a big fight among social movements and grassroots organizations around the world to get a place at the table to be able to talk about food policy and the right to food. Yeah. The U.S. representatives, by the way, are 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 just 100 percent against the the concept of the right to food. Okay, and they're they're against collective human rights in general, right? They only believe in a very limited individual rights, which basically takes the teeth out of the whole concept of human rights. Um, so, yeah, what we're seeing is suddenly out of nowhere, this food system summit was going to happen in September. And and they brought in the corporate bigwigs, these big corporate players to organize it and to invite people. And well, they got a black eye because civil society just said, that's outrageous. We're going to boycott. We're not going to take part. Wow. This is illegitimate. Yes. yes. This is illegitimate. <laughs> you know, 
And so the Via Campesina, so the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, so Climate Justice Alliance, Indigenous Peoples Treaty, a lot of groups are just totally 100% against what's happening with this summit. So we're having a series of events about the U.N. processes, about U.N. governance, and about the corporate capture. Basically, the U.N. has been taken over by nation states, have been taken over by corporate interests, who then translate their desires and their policies into the nations presenting these ideas in the UN and the UN processes. And basically, well, one of our members, Tyler, Tyler Short, has been on very late uh, uh, webinars and conference calls to hash out language uh, about what is agroecology? Why should, what, what is the concept of agroecology? Why is it essential to be part of the food system debate? And, but you're finding that the U.S., without fail, the U.S., and uh, a couple of European countries and a couple of countries that want to get favor, curry favor with the U.S., end up opposing uh, what, the, what the, basically the majority of humanity is calling for in, these, in the language of these kinds of documents and in the agenda of the, um, of the, the Committee for Food Security. At the I have a couple so, of questions. Yeah. I have a couple of questions, Steve. One is, what is food sovereignty and why is it a good thing? And also... What, how do corporations, big food corporations like Monsanto and ConAgra and Archer Daniels Midland, how do they get in the way of people's uh, food sovereignty? Well, basically food sovereignty, a lot of us uh, define it as food, um, decentralized and participatory food democracy. Okay, It means societies, communities should have the right to decide what's the appropriate food to eat, how should it be produced, how should it be processed, how should it be made available to everyone. Um, that's food sovereignty. It's basically uh, a concept that's so wonky that the corporations haven't been able to co-opt it. So, and since it's a word that's hard to spell, it also puts, it makes people have to spend time to understand what it means. It basically means food democracy at a rad- in a radical sense. Um, the corporations, they, they, uh, they direct how policy happens. Uh, they direct because they are big buyers. They tend to crush the smaller, right? The big crush the smaller. The big fish eat the little fish. Right. You can't compete. Right. Um, that's the, the overall dynamic. Uh, however, people are the majority. If we really want to, if we really seek and and make happen real democracy in the grassroots spaces, we're going to end up with the food that we want to eat, produced by ourselves. And, and processed and distributed in a way that we find appropriate, fair, and, and uh, beneficial and healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, Louisville is faced, we're get right now there's $150 million coming to Louisville, the American Rescue Package money. And last night we had a very good first meeting of food justice advocates and participants, producers, and eaters, and, and people fighting for uh, economic and social justice came together last night. We're, we're going to try to get the ear of Metro Council and say, look, we need a good food system. We need some new policies and some new money to help make food justice happen in our city here. Make urban ag possible, you know, make it easier for people to produce their own food and to process it. Make it easier for people to get vacant land to produce food on. Uh, make it easier and uh, support you know, uh, a higher price for local food that can be subsidized in procurement. Um, 
in the city, you know, to make to make to make it possible for people with low income to receive the same kind of healthy food that people from affluent neighborhoods do when they buy organic produce at local, uh, you know, farmers markets. So there's a whole series of great recommendations that came out of the meeting, and we're going to be pushing this agenda forward. I can see I see it as a microcosm of the big fight at the UN over the food systems summit. Yeah, it would be great for so many reasons for us to be able to to have the economics to get our more of our food locally. Certainly, you know, less carbon usage when right. we are able to have less transport and when we have our food that's not grown by nitrogen fertilizers that take lots of natural gas, like 10 calories of natural gas to produce one calorie of food. Plus the nutrition of local food is so much better. And the, the nutrition of food that's produced on regenerative farms where they have healthy soils uh, is all very good. But our food system is designed for profit at the for profit for the big players so if you design your food for shelf life with lots of packaging and processing and preservatives then that's profitable but you know it's not healthy so Stephen, how exactly would it be subsidized i know that they're like uh snap program and things like that are one way of subsidizing local food by making you know local Farmers markets eligible for SNAP benefits and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I can picture the mechanism of double dollar type system that the that the county or the combined county and city puts the money behind, and therefore when uh, people who are eligible for SNAP or WIC go to a farmers market or go to a local grocery, which which we hope that there will also be money to help young people start local businesses, small scale neighborhood grocery stores or points of distribution of food that can be some other model that's not within the capitalistic profit motive. Um, cooperative type uh, food distribution, like, like is being done with Fresh Stop under the New Roots program of Fresh Stop. Right. So there's, we, want, we want money to back up successful models of community organizing that have brought healthy food to low-income neighborhoods, and we want real money. Look at this, $150 million. Imagine how, how far, let's say, 20 or $30 million could go in terms of given a huge stimulus for local production of food, local production, processing, and distribution of food, right? You could have job creation all around for people to process and distribute food throughout all the corners of Louisville. It could all be local food, right? This could be a, you know, accelerate awakening that's happening around healthy food and localized food food economy. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my journey through climate uh climate analysis leads me to that there's no single higher priority than regenerative farming. And what Uh, do you mean when you say that, Hart? Well, one thing I was going to say is that, you know, regenerative farming could be a a basis for a local economy, but I'm not sure exactly what you wanted me to address. I was just saying what what regenerative agriculture is. Well, okay. So it's generally where you say you say no to some things so you can say yes to other things. <laughs> right. You say no to chemical fertilizers. You say no to uh, chemical pesticides. Uh, you say no to tilling for the most part. 
And what you end up with is uh, you say no to monocultures, yeah. uh, which is one crop as far as the eye can see. You say yes to more biodiversity on the local farm. You say yes to living soils because the, the tilling and the chemicals and the pesticides tend to kill the soils. And the, it's the living soils that deliver nutrition to the food. It's living soils that can soak up water when it rains. It's living soils that can soak up carbon year after year after year. So whether you're a gardener or a farmer, your land becomes more and more valuable because it becomes more and more carbon rich. Um, and and yeah. so that's that's what regenerative farming is. It's good for nutrition. It's good for carbon. I think it, it would be tremendous for local economies. Um, and I, I like to think of it as the opposite of extractive industries. So, you know, we so much of our economy is based on these things, whether we're, you know, it's as straightforward as a mine extracting resources right. from the ground or extracting wealth from people's labor like this country was founded on. Right. The extractive industry of chattel slavery. Uh, but modern agriculture has uh, become that way. Industrialized agriculture is, tends to be very extractive. Uh, use it relying on you know limited amount of topsoil and not caring about preserving it right and the nutrients embedded in it or uh, tapping into the Ogallala aquifer in Nebraska right and and basically mining fossil water that won't be replenished faster than you're using it Uh, and so these kinds of practices are extractive and it ties back to to the extractive nature of patented seeds right but a regenerative system is one one where you're building wealth, you're putting back into the land, right? Uh, and you're making sure that your system can truly be sustainable by providing its own fertility, by its own moisture, everything that plants need. Well, or you can do it with animals too, right? Animals, animal regenerative agriculture too. Uh, it's just a different way of thinking about doing farming and doing business. And you're absolutely right that it can be a source of wealth for us and a, and a, a way to base an economy on a more sustainable model, right? Right, exactly. I like to think of a farm, a farm can be, a farm or a garden can be part of the ecosystem. It's like if nothing's eating your plants, then then you're not part of the ecosystem. Uh, uh, the, the way our farms are today, they crowd out nature. A monoculture batch is, is low diversity, but nature is high diversity. So when some of nature's diversity comes into your monoculture, you got to kill it, yeah. you know? So, uh, but we could have farms that actually regenerate uh we can have farms that have the living that have an absence of toxins they tend to build the soils uh they they tend to need pollinators so that you 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 have wildflowers for the pollinators you have a diversity of uh of crops which is good for nutrition the diversity is also good for you know there's nothing better than than plant diversity to build your soil health and um so Stephen, did you want to jump in? Oh, just that uh, my phone's about to die, but I wish you all <laughs> harmony, <laughs> harmony and prosperity, and la lucha sigue sigue, as the as the Zapatistas used to say, and I continue to say la lucha sigue sigue. So um, this is a this is a spring of great promise, uh, and I hope that uh, the energy from Black Lives Matter and from the great social movements that have been rising up um, and taking the streets. I, I feel like we need to continue that, and I feel like we have some momentum. 
and I feel like um, people are waking up gradually, and it's it's uh, heartening. Yeah. So um, thank you. I think my phone's about to die, so I didn't want to just slip away. Oh, that's um, well. Thanks, thanks for letting us know, and thanks for joining us and taking the time. Maybe if I could quickly ask before your phone dies, uh, did did I hear children in the background? Are the garden camps happening this year? No, unfortunately, the church couldn't open the facility in time. Oh. uh, But the church can put in a beautiful little play area next to the church, and uh, families come, and that's good. Actually, I was watching a little boy who wanted to harvest one of the still green uh, apples in the in the uh, <laughs> Granny Smith apple tree that we have, and uh, I was he wasn't tall enough to grab it, so <laughs> I was kind of telling him no. You gotta wait for that apple to mature. First. Yeah, <laughs> a lesson in patience. <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks for for joining us, Stephen. It's great to have you here on Truth to Power, and we welcome you back anytime, my friend. Enjoy the garden. Okay. Much. <laughs> well, as we as we conclude our program here, Hart, I know you really did want to. Uh, you, you had some important reflections on on climate change, and and the you've kind of set up this framework of Plan A versus B versus C. You want to tell me about that? So the, the the purpose of this is to show how you know we have a a Republican plan and a just in broad terms generalizing we have a Republican plan and a Democratic plan. Wait, and the then, Republicans and have then, a plan for climate change? I thought they like to put their head in the sand. That's that's, <laughs> that's kind the of plan. the point. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's kind of the point. No plan. Also, the Republican plan is Plan A. So you know, lots and lots of fossil fuels. You're in denial about climate change. You're in denial about biodiversity loss. You're in denial about environmental pollution. So there's no plan whatsoever to address any of these issues. Plus, we're thoroughgoing capitalists. Capitalism equals freedom. Uh, you know, it's not perfect, <laughs> but it's the best we have, right? Uh, and then and then, as a result of all this, there are no limits on fossil fuels, no limits on war. War is all good all the time. And no limits on cars, no limits on air travel, no limits on big ag or urban sprawl or consumption. Yeah. So that's the Republican plan. We, we know that that's, you know, nowheresville. We know that that's, and, and you're going to, and the Republicans are coming around. They're, uh, they, they see the, they see uh, profit opportunities in like selling things like solar panels and, and uh, any technology that can be. Anyway, I'm trying. I'm halfway tongue in cheek there, but uh, you know, if there's profit to be made, then they're going to be on board with that. Of course, there's no well, limits on those things. Heart limits right. are un-American. I know it's un-American. <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with this? Is the Wild West? There's unlimited sky and unlimited land. This country was founded on no limits. What? This country was founded on no limits. Come on right, now. Right. Right. <laughs> so you just have to ignore the people that were here before we got here. Oh you know? yes. Oh yes. Yeah. You just have to, you know, deny that they ever existed. <laughs> so um, Plan B is the Democratic plan. It's lots and lots of clean and renewable energy. So we're going to invest in solar power and wind power and electric vehicles and batteries and a smart grid. And we're going to generate lots and lots of clean and renewable energy. And it's going to be, you know, the problem there is that you're flooding the market with cheap energy. So that's a problem. Plus, you know, solar panels have a uh, uh, they, 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 they have a carbon footprint of their own, you know. But anyway, continuing with the plan B, we're, we're going to hope we're going to hope <laughs> that clean and renewable energy will reduce carbon. We're going to hope. 
and and you know a lot of it is just throwing a lot of mud up against the wall it's tactics without strategies it's we hope this works and there's no no real plan or strategy lots and lots of techno fixes it is capitalist because you know the uh, the Democratic plan wants to engage Wall Street. They want to engage Michael Bloomberg and Richard Branson and the Rockefeller brothers and the Ford Foundation. But also in this plan, there's no, meaning, no meaningful reform of agriculture. Uh, there's no meaningful reform of transportation or defense. Those are three things that need to be revolutionized if not go away entirely, yes. you know, defense needs to go away by 90% at least. Yeah. Transportation, no, we're not serious about, um, right. about a climate if we're churning out 65 million new cars per year worldwide. <laughs> right. We could stop manufacturing cars tomorrow and we still have enough to last us from here on out, baby. <laughs> but uh, we've got to make more ma- cars, ma- Hart, because they have to be no. electric now. Yeah, right. Yeah, you have to make more, more cars, and they're going to have lots and lots of gadgets and lots and lots of features. Have so you, electric cars are like... What? Have you ever once heard of someone talking about retrofitting an existing car, a, you know, existing gas-powered car, and making it electric? Nobody talks about that. Right. We've got right. all these cars everywhere, and the whole thinking is, oh, we'll just junk them, I guess, and yeah. make new ones, right? Like, right. that is such unsustainable thinking. Think about it cars is that uh, I heard from a a pretty reliable source that 60% of the pollution occurs before they roll off the assembly line. That's right. It's already there. So much of the pollution occurs in the manufacturing process. Yep. So it's like, you know, I have uh, friends with brand new electric cars and I have friends with like a 16-year-old Prius. Yeah. Or even a 16-year-old like, or even a 20-year-old Nissan, something from the 90s. Right. That that second group, they're, in my mind, they're a lot more sustainable. Right. Absolutely. So, but they they won't go around feeling high and mighty about it. So they're they're not going to talk about it. You know, the people who's who's taking up all the oxygen in the room are the people who want to, you know, shake the the fancy new uh, car in your face, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and that's what we hear. That's virtue signaling, right? Yeah, virtue signaling. So we hear about that because groups like Inside Climate News is like you know on board with the corporate agenda, uh, or any commercial. Uh, like there's a, a GM had a Super Bowl ad that talked about how, you know, they're going to be doing electric cars. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's corporate products. We're going to shop our way out of this crisis. Right. <laughs> so, so there's that. How much time do we have, Justin? We, we've only got five minutes. I think we should okay. get to plan C. Okay. Yeah. So, but uh, plan, plan B a, a little real quick. Yeah. We we're in attention to ecology. And so like we need to do less physics and more biology. You know, we need to do we've used physics to sub- conquer and subdue and and mm, and uh, like exploit yeah. and abuse the planet. We need to more biology so we can understand we we're, we're trying to get to the stars and we don't even understand how the soil beneath our feet works. We don't know, <laughs> you know, we don't know one percent of what we should know about our soil. Uh, even anybody, anywhere. There's so much to be explored. There's like millions of species of fungi, millions of species of of, of micro bio, biota. Uh, so anyway, same so thing plants, about the oceans, Hart. We know nothing well, yeah. about the oceans. Oh, I yeah. bet, I mm-hmm. bet. Yeah, right. 
And uh, like the military could have a good job just like set and enforce reasonable fishing laws Mm. instead of bombing other countries. You know, we have the satellites for that. We probably have the Navy ships and the planes just to enforce reasonable laws uh, on our anyway. So that's what I know about the ocean. But plan C is the direct approach. If we're going to reduce fossil fuels, there's this thing called actually reducing fossil fuels. (laughs) In Hart Hagen's uh, fantasy world, <laughs> I, I look I look around me, and half the economy is yeah. a complete waste. Yep. You know, when you talk, it's, I've done this analysis in some detail, but if you look around you, things like defense, most of the manufacturing we have is a complete waste. And it's because it's all for profit. It's not for the well-being of people or the planet. So get rid of half of the economy and, and, and you're not going to get rid of things that anybody care about that, that half the economy we can get rid of only serves to concentrate power and wealth into the hands of a very few, instead of being stuff that we need. It's like, I'll give you back half your time and half your money, but we need to get control of our economy. The economy needs to be democratic. Democracy is where you get to vote on what affects you. So continuing with plan C, uh, like, do you, do you really want to solve the uh, climate crisis or do you want to play footsie with Republicans? <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, the Biden climate plan, just playing footsie with Republicans. Uh, you know, let's wink and, and, and let's subsidize all this stuff. Uh, we, we need to, okay, any climate plan that's going to work you need so a a strong social justice component yes you need for people to be involved you need it's like what's in it for me the 99 percent have every right to say what's in it for me because before now the whole thing has been geared toward what's in it for the one percent so we need to offer things that make a difference in people's lives. If that's a universal basic income, we need to do that. Certainly Medicare for all only exists for the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and the politicians that that support them. Jobs guarantee is a beautiful idea. There's a wonderful little book on that by uh, Pavlina Cherneva. And um, we, jobs guarantee is a whole other topic, but it's like a jobs guarantee would involve staffing, understaffed nonprofits and government entities on public interest things. Like let's put people to work in the public interest, give them a living wage, give them benefits, working for the public interest. And and that would take, that would shift power from the private sector. Uh, It's like, what are we going to, as it is, we're subsidizing McDonald's in a hundred different ways. Home Depot, all the big companies to, we're subsidizing exploitation. Let's stop that. So in, in, in summary, an economy based on care, we need to care, you know, we need to care for people, we need to care for nature, and we need to care for our vital systems and stop having an economy that's just based on, you know, the freedom to exploit. Yeah, or extract. Yeah, we, extract, need, that, right. we need that regenerative economy uh, if we're really going to have justice and if we're really going to have sustainability. And you're, and you're absolutely right, Hart, that there, there has to be a way forward that is built on an economy of care. I think that's a great note to end our conversation on this week. I want to thank you for taking the time to join, uh, join me here, Hart, and uh, thank you all listeners for tuning 
tuning in to us here at Forward Radio. We will be back in your ears again in one week's time with another community conversation like you won't hear anywhere else, only here at 106.5 FM and forwardradio.org. So see you all soon. Support nonprofit radio. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.